Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. Welcome, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We have a very interesting show for you today. Before we get to that, I'm going to jump over to Lou Weiss up in our uh, our New Jersey studio. But this is a rather lengthy show. I suggest you all stay tuned right through to the end. This is really some very important information, and the nuances come close to the end of the show. So stay tuned. But before we get to that, Lou, how are things up in uh, the New Jersey studio? Yeah, it's wonderful, wonderful. We're, we're busy as hell, and uh, uh, I just came back from uh, Washington last week to, at a NAM event uh, and uh, went to the Capitol and uh, met with some uh, senators and, uh, you know, told them our story about the way we'd like to see things going, and we had some very receptive ears, uh, which remained to be seen. That being said, being that we do have a long show today, uh, I just wanted to give our uh, postscript from uh, last week, which in itself was a rather interesting uh, show in that we did actually have uh, two shows, one on Tuesday and one on Wednesday. Um, It was our our global economic shows. We had Chris Keel from Armada Corporation, uh, Intelligence, discussing uh, the CMI, the credit manager's uh, report. We had Royce Lowe from the UK uh, talking UK and EU, and Chad Moutre from the National Association of Manufacturing uh, talking about, uh, and he's the economist for uh, NAM, uh, obviously talking about uh, the numbers as they see it. All in all, the numbers are looking pretty good, um, and uh, you know, with a certain amount of hesitation on my side, but everybody says everything is looking better. Uh, after today's show, I don't know if uh, everyone's going to feel that. Uh, the second show we did uh, last week on Wednesday, we had Chung Wang, who's our uh, uh, reporting, uh, 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 contributing reporter in uh, China. Uh, and we had Norbert Orr from Strategist, who reports on 18 different uh, PMI reports from around the world and around the U.S. So there's a lot of numbers. Uh, the good thing about it is that there's a lot of numbers, and it seems as though all the numbers are going in the same direction, which is good. Just like we have 17 uh, Intel agencies in the United States that are all going in the same direction as well. Uh, but that's a whole other topic. Uh, news, a couple items that are noteworthy. Uh, Parker Hannafin has uh, announced that they're opening up a Macedonia, Ohio plant uh, for additive manufacturing that's going to be producing uh, new jobs and more jobs. Um, next item is that BMW, which has been here in the United States for 25 years, in Spartanburg, South Carolina, they are celebrating their 25th anniversary this week as the world, their world's largest auto plant, uh, and they're investing an additional $600 million and adding another 1,000 jobs to the already 9,000 jobs 
that they already have. Uh, they built last year at that plant 411,000 BMWs, uh, which is you know really phenomenal. Uh, Harry Mosier, I don't, I don't know if you all remember who Harry is. Uh, Tim and I meet Harry almost at every event that we go to. He is the president and CEO of the Reshoring Initiative. Uh, he stated that, uh, he came out with a statement this week that between 2010 and 2016, 265,000 jobs came back to the U.S. Um, that's, uh, that's, that's something. It's not, uh, it's not huge, but it's, it's a pretty good number, even though it's only it's over a six-year period. It seems as though that the primary reason that these jobs are coming back, and you all ought to remember this when you hear it in mainstream media, if you happen to hear that, uh, that the reason why a lot of jobs are coming back to the U.S. is because the companies that left and went to foreign countries to open plants had certain tax benefits. Those tax benefits are expiring. And now they're beginning to get tax benefits from the U.S. or will even get bigger ones if President Trump does some of the things that he says he's going to do. So it's not that we're making it so advantageous for the employees, but it is because the companies are getting a break to come back to the United States. So that, that, I thought that that was a pretty, pretty important uh, comment in regards to reshoring. Next item, and the last item, this is a, a, it's really quite, uh, quite the story. The Paris Air Show is going on uh, as we speak, and General Electric has created a new engine called LEAP, L-E-A-P, and it's a very highly efficient engine. Uh, and in the LEAP engine, there are a total of 19 uh, 3D printed parts. And because of the methodology in being able to print these parts, these um, gas nozzles that they use uh, create a, an extremely efficient engine to the point that each engine saves 15% of fuel. Uh, that's huge, big numbers, uh, and they sold at the Paris Air Show, 1,660 new engines, which added to what they've already sold this past year of a total of 14,000 engines. Um, GE is really cooking with gas. <laughs> They're really doing a great job and creating efficient engines. Um, it seems that uh, they're doing real well at the Paris Air Show, and actually, it is the hit of the show. They've sold a total at the show of $27 billion worth of these 1,660 engines. So I would say that uh, they're probably partying pretty well at nighttime. Um, Tim, that's it. Okay, Luke. Uh, appreciate Where are we, the... we going? Now let's Right, now we've got to teach people how to cover their assets. 
they I need like to mitigate that. risk. They need <laughs> they they need to take a serious look at the companies they're doing business with. I know there's a tendency when you have a supplier to to assume the supplier is just fine and they promise a good delivery and you get a good price and you might not look beyond that. But what Jerry Flum and Peter uh, Rosa are going to tell us is that we've got to look beyond just that cursory relationship and get a feel for the credit strength of the supplier. And you might want to change suppliers. You might want to change credit terms. There's a number of things you need to do to mitigate risk. So let's get to uh, Jerry and well, Peter from Credit uh, Risk Tim, Monitor. Tim, Tim yeah. I'd like to make one I'd like to bring out one point, and when you folks are listening to Jerry and Peter, think about this uh, point that I'm going to bring up. This past week, a very large steel service center chain by the name of AM Castle has filed Chapter 11, and they have a total of 30 divisions, all of which are different service centers. Uh, supplying different types of steel products. Had major corporations had the services of Jerry and Peter, I won't give the name yet, I'll let you do that. If they had the service of uh, Jerry and Peter, these large corporations would not, they would have known that AM Castle was on the verge of bankruptcy. And They've got a great service, not expensive, and it's something that I think uh, our listeners should be aware of and recognize that their service is really vital. So that being said, take it away, Tim. Welcome, everyone, to this segment of Manufacturing Talk Radio. We are here with a couple of gentlemen from Credit Risk Monitor. Jerry Flum is the Chief Executive Officer and Chairman and Peter Roma is Vice President of Credit Risk Monitor. They have a rather interesting tale to tell. Uh, I'm going to be real curious how our listeners react to the information they're about to hear. I encourage you to share it with anyone that you know. Uh, it could be uh, life-changing. It might not be, but it's certainly worth listening to. I'd like to welcome Jerry and Peter to... Manufacturing Talk Radio, along with uh, my co-host, Lou Weiss. Welcome. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. And me too, yeah. Lou. So We're glad you're here, Lou. Uh, As a matter of fact, why don't you kick it off with uh, Jerry? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, Jerry, uh, give us a little uh, background on uh, Credit Risk Monitor, and then we'll jump into your story, which uh, I've now heard twice. Uh, and it's uh, an interesting tale, and I hope that everyone doesn't go to the bar afterwards to recuperate. So why don't you tell us your background? Well, for people who can't see, I, you, you have no more places to get more white hair. <laughs> <laughs> as long as I have hair on the head, that's yeah, all that counts. I agree with that, by the way. But uh, So we are a small public company that uh, analyzes risk corporations around the world. We primarily uh, devote ourselves to analyzing risk at public companies around the world, of which there's roughly about 58 to 70,000 public companies around the world. 
We also do some uh, analysis of private companies, uh, probably two to three million or four million of those around. But we specialize in public company risk, and we have scores that predict event of bankruptcy or failure in the succeeding 12 months, and our scores are very, very effective. They predict it within 96 to 97 percent of the time, and uh, we have a subscriber base of the largest corporations around the world who subscribe to our service, and we have thousands of credit managers and a fair amount of purchasing managers uh, that subscribe to the service. And so that's what we're about. We have deep kind of analytical uh, work done on all these companies so that we can back up our scores to prove their effectiveness. And uh, we do all this in real time. And we have, a, like I said, a very extensive following. Um, let's see what else I could say about us. We've been in business about 18 years. service which is geared to be very, very fairly priced for the amount of data and risk that we provide. It's uh, at the risk of being too commercial in the beginning, but I do think it's important for people to understand because what we're going to say um, is uh, a little uh, uh, scary to some people, and so our ability to help is not something that we're trying to ask people to go out and spend a lot of money to try and find an antidote to what we're talking about. So it's $4,000 a year for all you can eat or $8,000 for a worldwide. And that pricing is very much part of our service because we want to make it very affordable to be used. Uh, I do want to mention to our listeners that uh, today's show is a little bit different than uh, our most of the shows that we do that is uh, significantly manufacturing-oriented. And this does touch on manufacturing, but it really affects uh, people in our society who uh, have money or don't have money and how they should be uh, looking out for their present and future uh, in terms of what's coming uh, or potentially coming down the road within our uh, economy. So, uh, Jerry or Peter, if you want to take off and, and tell us a little bit, a uh, little bit or a lot of bit, uh, about what you feel is coming and how uh, our listeners should be prepared, uh, not to the point of scary, but to the point of understanding that what goes up also comes down. And we've had that recently happened in 2007-8, and we're still probably uh, recuperating from that. So why don't you give us uh, your view of uh, what's happening? Well, uh, to start off with, uh, we think the major driver of risk in the world today is um, debt. In other words, as companies, as individuals, and as governments load up on debt, they create more instability uh, in their institutions, and we think people have to pay attention to that. And today, debt is higher than it was in 2007, 2008, and in fact, it's on a really large scale going backwards over many years, it's much higher than it was in 1929, 30, 31, 32. So the, the um, 
the background picture is the most corrosive thing that you can have in the well-being of a society is uh, too much debt. And I'm going to quote Warren Buffett. I'm not going to quote him exactly uh, word for word, but I do want to set the trend of it. And the trend of it is that uh, you have to really be a world-class, lousy business manager to drive a debt-free company out of business. And in a way, what Mr. Buffett is saying is the more you increase debt, uh, the more uh, difficult it is to manage a company successfully because you become subject to uh, competitive companies who do or don't have debt. And as your competitors go in and out of business, if they're going out of business, what will happen before they go out of business, most companies will cut prices and therefore affect everybody in their industry as they cut prices, margins and profitability for everybody in that industry is going to be impacted negatively. And therefore, uh, depending upon how stable you are, if you have a company which has less risk in it or less debt in the balance sheet or loans or whatever sources of uh, fixed uh, expense kind of debt, uh, that you're lugging around, you're going to have to really deal with this because it's going to be very scary. I remember that you mentioned to me in uh, some of our pre-show discussions that the amount of debt now is three and a half times GDP, 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 GDP. Uh, and the two and a half percent, was that the... No, it's actually uh, in... in 29 and 30, 31, it got as high as roughly two and a half times. Right. Uh, today, it's about 3.5. Um, it's very, very high. And basically, what uh, the reason for that is the 207, 208, 209 contraction around the world, not just in the United States, the response to protect everybody on the part of the central banks of the world was to lower interest rates. And so in the process of lowering interest rates, uh, because there was so much debt, uh, it made the refinancing of this debt, which under normal circumstances of rates had stayed where they are, would it have been an impossible hurdle to overcome for most companies. And we would have had economic contraction on a scale worse than it was. So in a well-meaning attempt to mitigate this contraction on scale, governments or through their central banks, and I assume also through the policy of those governments and encouraging their central banks to lower rates, uh, they did it. What makes this so amazing, they've lowered rates uh, that um, have never been seen in human history on the planet, and in many cases, we have negative interest rates. What that means is the borrower is uh, paying actually below, there's no interest rate on the money that they borrow. As an example, somewhere between 35 or plus percent to as high as 40 some odd percent of the debt being issued by some of the sovereign governments in Europe are being issued at negative interest rates. That means that the lender is giving the government a dollar and the government in many cases is promising to pay back over the term of the loan, which could be one year, two years, three years, or 10 years, is promising to pay back 98 cents or 99 cents or 97 cents. So what happens is you give them the money and they will guarantee you 
that you will get back less money. And so you have to ask yourself, under what circumstances would a lender be willing to do that? And a lender will be willing to do that on scale if they are frightened to death that if they give their money to somebody else, they won't get it all back. In fact, they'll get less back than in 97 cents or 98 cents. They might get back 50 cents or 40 cents, in which case lending it to somebody who will absolutely give you back 97 cents or 98 cents is a bargain for these people. But what they're really reflecting is they are frightened to death of what's going on in the world, and they are making a bet of economic contraction or deflation. And let me explain what I mean by that. If you get back 98 cents on the dollar, that's a good deal for you if that 98 cents will buy the equivalent of a dollar ten in goods out in the world. In other words, instead of buying that car for $3,000, 3,000 single-dollar bills, you'll be able to buy it for 2,500 single-dollar bills, in which case getting back your money or close to all of it is a good deal if the alternative is that you'll only get back $1,000 if you give the money to a, a different lender. So this is pervasive all through the world, and what it does do, it, it uh, artificially created something that I think is an unintended consequence on scale. What has occurred is that as interest rates have been forced down by governments, more and more companies that ought not be in business, that are um, either not managed correctly or that there is severe overcapacity in their industry or sundry other things that could be occurring, those companies are given extra life because what they can do is go out and borrow money at an artificially depressed rate and pay back the loans that they have extant, or they can continue to just grow and try and stay in business and pay off the interest with the money that they're borrowing. In other words, they borrow money to pay off the loans they have. And all of this slowly increases the amount of debt in the world. And if you increase debt too far, uh, there needs to be a natural predator in society that will stop people from borrowing money. And the natural predator in our society to prevent people from overborrowing is something called interest rates. In other words, if you were to borrow money, uh, if you were to borrow $100,000 and you were to pay 3% interest, you'll have a 3% interest charge. However, if the interest rate is 30%, that interest charge is now $30,000. And obviously, at some point, that's prohibitive and prevents you from borrowing or continuing to borrow. When the governments of the world came in and artificially uh, lowered these uh, interest rates, they allowed people to borrow more and more and more. And so there's no natural constraint on the amount of borrowing that goes on. Well, Jerry, Peter, let me ask you this question. Um, and I'm, I'm taking a very simplistic view of it. If I were to uh, look to borrow, uh, uh, borrow a, a dollar, and the interest rate is uh, brings it down to 98 cents that uh, I'm going to get get back, uh, and I can but I can spend 98 cents and get a dollar five. Yep. What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. That's great. That is great. So what's what's wrong? That's what, what? why people are doing it. Oh, so the, the when does the balloon well, burst? Well, the, the the problem is that. <clears throat> Many of the companies that your listeners are concerned about, that obviously their suppliers and or their customers, 
you know, they're basically borrowing this money and they're leveraging up their company. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and in doing so, um, they now put that company at severe risk. Um, because in borrowing this money in an economic uh, contraction where there's severe overcapacity, there is uh, there's not a, uh, an incentive for them to invest and build out their, their factories and, and build mm -hmm. out their people and so forth. So in essence, what they now do with this money is they now take this money and they now pay dividends uh, to shareholders and or buy back stock because they really have nothing else to do with the money. And what that leaves now is that leaves the cash has left the company and that leaves basically debt on the balance sheet. And, uh, and that increased leverage now causes those companies to suffer uh, lower ratings. And those lower ratings uh, carry with them a consequence. And that consequence is a higher probability of default and or bankruptcy as you move forward. And uh, so, uh, so while it's great that these companies are able to borrow this money at such low rates, um, it's actually what they're doing with the money and the risk that now has created for those people who are buying from them or selling to them. So when you uh, talk about them buying, uh, borrowing money to effectively give a benny to their uh, shareholders, uh, they're, they're just perpetuating the, the end to come sooner than later. Because you said that they have nothing else to do with their money. They could invest and buy new, new equipment, new technology, you know, better yeah. training. And develop a, a, an ability to pay back the debt. In other words, that debt now has to be serviced. Correct. And whatever amount comes aboard means you'll have to pay more interest because now they have more debt. They'll have to pay off more debt because now they have more debt. So under normal circumstances, a company would build plant and equipment, mm -hmm. would hire people, train people, do more advertising, do more marketing, do all of those things which build an ability to repay the debt. However, in the circumstances today, the money comes into these companies and it leaves the company. The debt stays, but the money leaves the company in actually a, what appears to be a really nice thing to be happening. It comes out and goes to shareholders. It goes in the form of dividends or share buybacks. Uh, some people have been said, uh, saying that part of that is influenced by the fact that the executives at these companies are compensated if the price of the stock stays high or goes higher. So there is an argument that actually, that in part, this is motivated by self-interest. But whether it is or isn't, it really doesn't matter much because the end result is that these companies will not have an ability, well, will have a lesser ability to pay back this debt. And in fact, today, in the United States of America, we have approximately a $1.8 trillion on a gross national product of $17 trillion, which is categorized as uh, high-yield debt. In other words, when it's sold to the general public out there, Wall Street does a wonderful thing of calling it high-yield uh, high debt. Uh, the sales guys, when they're talking to each other and talking to guys like us, refer to it in its true name, and they refer to it as junk debt, because the odds of it getting paid back are actually mathematical. We have great data on that. And as you issue this debt, it's such ugly stuff uh, that cumulatively, the worst parts of it, referred to as triple C debt, 
50% of it under normal circumstances will will not be paid off. It will go bankrupt. And um, today, um, we have so much of this in relationship to the well-being of the country. And by the way, this is true all over the world. What's going to happen is uh, those uh, this, this debt uh, is a, a, an albatross around the neck of the communities people where we all live and where we all work. And so uh, we, our company, when we look at this stuff, we realize that uh, there is a wonderful Ponzi scheme going on here for the Ponzi people. And the Ponzi people are the guys issuing the debt. And the people who are being suckered in are the people who are buying the debt. But more importantly, it's the people who sell to those companies who are trade creditors because they are last in line in how they get repaid. In other words, debt that's evidenced by an instrument, like a piece of uh, junk debt or a loan, are going to come earlier when that company goes out of business. They're going to get paid first. And they won't get all their money, but I can tell you the trade creditors are going to get very little. In addition, all those people who are who are purchasing from those companies don't realize that these companies will all have severe difficulty. And as they get into severe difficulty in their fight to maintain their existence, they're going to be cutting all of those things that uh, you want in a supplier, which would be you want them to invest in R&D, you want them to invest in new plant and equipment, you want them to train their people, you want them to come out with new products. Well, they're not going to do all of that to the same levels they were doing before because on the process of going out of business, they need to conserve cash and they're going to do whatever humanly possible to do that. And that means the guys left in holding the bag are going to be uh, customers of or people who sell to them, and the general public out there who owns the, the junk debt because they're not going to get paid in full either. So when this economic contraction starts on scale, it circulizes and goes all through our society. And if you would look around at most industries, and we do in our company, we analyze industries and specific companies and in industries. And there is severe overcapacity in mostly every industry around the world because in the beginning of this buildup, they went ahead and they borrowed the money, they built the plant, and now there's plant out there, but now there's too much plant. And if, in fact, demand contracts because companies go out of business and consumers get left with it being able to spend less, uh, there's severe overcapacity. And the way sequence goes in that, period of time is that before companies go out of business, they historically cut their prices and try and get revenue uh, that is normally going to a competitor. Now, as they cut those prices, the competitor has to react. So prices start to come down all over. And that means profitability in every industry, depending upon the amount of overcapacity and the amount of debt within that industry of the competitive companies within the industry, will give you some reasonably good sequence of who's going under first. So just uh, to extract a point or two yes. out of what you mentioned, it seems to me that the Wall Street greed plays a humongous role in creating the, uh, uh, the debt factor by uh, selling product that isn't worth money that you're investing. You want to comment well, on I, that or correct it? Uh, I, 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 you know, on some level, one could 
blame it on Wall Street. And uh, I, I come out of Wall Street and I spent 40-plus years as a hedge fund manager and uh, ran a research department of an investment firm. So I, I'm not going to – I don't want to be defensive of Wall Street. They obviously, as the agents created this – the real culprits are the combination of Wall Street as a facilitator and uh, trying to make it even a little bit worse. But uh, there is a really major part uh, on the part of governments which encourage policies that are for the most part inimical to the well-being of corporations and to companies and therefore to citizens because most of us work uh, and we don't work for government, thank God. There are some <laughs> of us out there who actually work in private enterprise. And it's those companies uh, which are going to be severely impacted. It's very hard to envision that the uh, Commerce Department of the United States is going to go out of business because of overcapacity. Right. But I can assure you that there will be many, many, many private and public companies in severe overcapacity and over-indebtedness uh, going out of business. And the people who work for those companies are really uh, at risk. Talking about uh, overcapacity, uh, the glaring example of that is China, who presently is uh, way over capacity. Yes. They know it, and they are actually doing some things about it. Uh, Europe is first coming back from the re uh, great, great Recession, and they're actually looking like they're getting better. Uh, the United States is we're slowly looking like we're getting better. Um, where's the overcapacity here? Well, you know, it's interesting the way you state it because uh, I uh, I have a different take on life and uh, how I look at corporations and countries and stuff like that. Look, nothing goes in any direction in a straight line. Right. Okay, so if you're going down, you're going to have a series of ups and downs and ups and downs. What you want to measure is the recent highs – on a sequence or the recent lows in a sequence. And it is true that Europe may be getting a little better. Maybe the United States is getting a little better. I view this as a little better in a very large downstream. In other words, what happens is that you get respirates uh, from uh, these sequences where you're going down. It's, when you look at a stock chart, you'll see that it goes, as it's going up, it goes up and down, up and down, but the trend line is up. And when it's going down over a long period, it's a series of ups and downs and ups and downs. And so the million-dollar question is, are things really getting better? And what I want to get back to is my original presumption. If, um, if there, I hope is a God, and if there is one out there, and he or she was to ask me what is the single most important thing that you would use if we took away every other indicator, uh, I would say to you, I would use debt. In other words, what's happening is debt is excessive and gets worse each year. And today, it's beyond where it was in 07, 08. And we at Credit Risk Monitor to measure this stuff, so we measure debt in every single society, every country, every industry. And you can see, for the most part, that it's a way uh, – it's, it's, it's worse than it was then. Now, if the government was successful to get economies really growing on scale and they're working their fannies off to make that happen, then you will see interest rates go up. Now, that's okay provided that the, the bulk of the debt that's already out there, the successive amount of debt, if it's at very low interest rates – 
as interest rates start to go up, the existing debt has to come down. In other words, if the government can issue debt at 4%, and I already own debt that uh, is being, as paying 2%, and uh, or, uh, I can't sell it in the marketplace and ask the buyer to take 2% interest when the government is, is out there selling stuff I can get 4% on. So what happens is the price of the debt I want to sell to this guy has to come down so that it yields 4%, equivalent to what the government is issuing debt at now. And that contraction in the price of the existing debt is going to be dramatic decrease in the value of what I think I'm worth. In other words, who are the people who own that debt that's out there today? It's pension funds, mutual funds, 401k plans. It's... um, it's every place because it's on scale. And so all of that debt's going to contract. Now, when you have debt, which is roughly two and eight, uh, three and a half times GDP, if that debt comes down 5 or 10%, it means that uh, the wealth that the society believes it has contracts a huge scale. And we have debates going on in America today whether the economy can grow at 1.8% or one point. 9% or 2.3%. Man, totally misses the real picture here. We're fixating on something which is quite small in relation to the risk that if rates were to go up because the government is successful to get it up, what it's going to do is going to tr- contract the existing debt, and it's three and a half times bigger than the GDP. Now, I'm not telling you you have to be a math scholar, but I can tell you if it goes down 10% and it's three and a half times GDP, you know, you could be looking at a contraction in GDP of 5, 10, 15, 20% or some larger number enough to create enormous internal frictions in our society. Uh, Presently in the news uh, just, I think, last week, uh, the state of Illinois is facing a huge financial potential collapse. Can you talk to that? uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a new uh, point. Let's depress the whole state of Illinois. I want everybody to know that we are talking from New Jersey. (laughs) 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 Uh, We're not talking from Illinois, because who would want to go there and say what I'm going to say? What do people want to do? I mean, uh, Pete has brought, you had those pills with you, <laughs> we have special pills those that we give people, pills. yeah, and uh, we, uh, can, we, you know, might distribute them in the state of Illinois, look, Illinois has got excessive debt, what's going to happen, you know, everybody's looking for, what's this magic pill, we're going to get, there is no magic pill, we're not saying there's a magic pill, what we're saying is that if you pay attention to this, you can take steps as a, somebody running a company or working for a company buying from a company, selling from a com- uh, selling to a company, you can start to take steps which mitigate uh, against this uh, backdrop, which is beyond anything any of us have ever, se- ever seen uh, before. Look, I want to put this in perspective, that there is nobody out there, I don't care if he's in the Federal Reserve, I don't care if you're in the Senate, the House, uh, they went to uh, uh, Stanford Business, I don't care where they're from. There's nobody on the planet today, and for that matter, ever been on the planet, that has ever dealt with negative interest rates. Nobody in the history of mankind has ever historically lent a dollar and thought it was a great deal to get back 95 cents. (laughs) You know, maybe there's some 
you know, maybe leopards did. I don't know. Maybe that's why they're not king of the universe anymore. But the point is that nobody has ever lived through this. What's also unparalleled is not only has the governments and the central banks got this much debt out there, but these guys have gone and lowered the interest rates. Under normal circumstances, interest rates would be sky high with this much debt. They've artificially depressed the interest rates, not for one year, but for nine years. Now, interest rates, or the risk-free rate of capital, which is, I'm getting a little complicated for everybody out there, but that is the most important axiom that you need to pay attention to in capitalism. If I can borrow money at 3% risk-free, I'm getting the money back no matter what, then if I want to come to somebody and say, look, I want to build something, I want to buy something, I want to borrow the money, borrow money from you, I need to pay you more than that 3% because at 3% it's risk-free. So if the government can can lower that rate from risk-free capital down to one or maybe negative, it means interest rates for all the more scarier projects, borrowing from corporations or mortgages or what have you, that all comes down. That means more and more people can go out and borrow money because rates are down. And they're going to, not because they're bad, but it's an enormous opportunity, and everybody thinks they're smarter than the next person, and therefore they won't get caught in this trap. And this is why it has caused so much risk at public companies. Oh. Because public companies are the ones that are, have the capability to leverage themselves up by borrowing that money. So when rates dropped artificially to the point that they are, this gave many corporations who might have had to pay significantly higher rates to borrow money to come in and borrow it at single digits, where they might have had to pay 12 or 15% because of their financial status, they're now borrowing money at four. And this obviously creates tremendous leverage on their part. And uh, not only that, but they also have another inherent risk, and that is refinance risk. So if rates do climb as the government is successful, then they now have to take this debt that they borrowed for 3% and possibly refinance at 6%. And if they're already in financial difficulty when they borrowed the money, then it's an even more difficult situation. And I think that, you know, your listeners are going to be concerned about uh, companies that they're doing business with that have significant levels of debt on their balance sheet and might have risk in refinancing or might have risk in continuing um, as, a for, as, a, as an ongoing business when you consider, as Jerry mentioned earlier, that the mortality of some of this junk bond debt can be as high as 50% over five years. So if you have that kind of mortality level, that can really be, uh, be, be uh, impactful. So, um, so it's really important to realize that it's public companies that can leverage themselves up to this point and that there's, there's an, an inherent risk there as a result of that leverage. You know, if you so lend to a company, you, you, you want to see a balance sheet, you want to see a P&L, you want to see a cash flow statement. You want certified ones. Well, in private companies, those aren't available. Every public company has certified financials. Therefore, they can walk in, and they have all the accoutements to borrow the money, and they do, where the private companies are restricted because they don't have all the things in place, three years of P&Ls and balance sheets, blah, blah, blah. And so it's easier for the public companies. And uh, one of the things we might address here is, you know, what do people do to mitigate this? What can a manufacturer do? What can a distributor do? 
to uh, mitigate the loss in this environment. And the first thing is to say, look, it's very, very hard to mitigate all loss uh, or to eliminate all loss. The only thing you can do is lower it or mitigate it. And what I would suggest, and Pete and I would suggest together, would be that corporations should, as a matter of policy now, start to borrow less, pay off existing debt wherever humanly possible, um, defer some plans if they can, uh, don't buy other companies. Uh, this is a time to get uh, savings uh, going in your life, a dollar's worth of cash that you can have in your pocket when this thing hits will be worth a lot more. In other words, one dollar of cash that you can save today might well, at the bottom of this contraction, buy a dollar twenty or a dollar fifty's worth of goods. So that dollar goes up in value. And instead of looking at interest rates as my rate of return when I go to cash or go to T-bills, I might look at whether I'm just getting 1% or 2% worth of interest and therefore who wants it, as opposed to looking at if, in fact, bad times really occur, will this $1 buy $1.50 worth of goods? Will I be able to get a haircut instead of spending $15 for a haircut? I'll only have to spend $3 for a haircut. That means the value of that single dollar bill has gone up. I don't have to pay 15 single dollar bills to get the haircut. I give them $3, three single dollar bills. That means the value of a dollar goes up. Another way to look at it is stock markets go down or go up. What does it mean to me? If I have to buy a stock at $10 a share and give 10 single dollar bills to buy that stock, uh, then I know that it in, in dollars it's worth $10. But if the price of the stock was to go to $3, then it only takes three single bills uh, to buy it. So bull markets in stocks are bear markets in cash. Bear markets in stocks are bull markets in cash. They're just the opposite. And so people should pay attention to that axiom. So Jerry, uh, you know, kind of asked the question, you know, what can these manufacturers uh, do or companies in business in general do? And I would take a more fundamental uh, approach, uh, and I would say the first thing is awareness. And I think that, uh, you know, one thing that's problematic, uh, you know, here we're talking about financial risk of, of your counterparties and customers and suppliers. And uh, so, you know, we, we have this situation where there's, you know, almost $2 trillion of junk bond debt on corporate balance sheets. And, um, you know, there are some pundits who are saying that we could have failure rates of 150 uh, to $200 uh, billion dollars a year uh, in failures based on that. And uh, so now what, you know, you're going to want to ask yourself is, well, how many companies am I doing business with that have uh, high levels of debt and have junk-weighted debt on their balance sheet? And, um, and what steps can I now take in, uh, in possibly finding alternative suppliers or changing uh, my strategy so that I can possibly mitigate that risk if there's a high probability of default and or failure with that company. And, you know, and we all know that, uh, Jerry touched on it briefly, but we all know that a company that is in severe financial distress has many other issues uh, that are going to accompany it other than just possible insolvency. You know, on the way to insolvency, they're going to make decisions that are going to maybe not be in the best interest of the, of the company. They're going to incur expense that might not be in the best interest of the company. 
um, and uh, and they they have reputational risk. They have uh, uh, you know further revenue risk. So there's so many uh, problems that start to snowball as a result of, of being in financial distress. So to be aware of that is probably you know one of the key first steps. And the other thing to be aware of is m- many many people that I speak to are not even aware how many companies that they're doing business with are public or how many of the companies that they're doing business with uh, that actually uh, roll up or link to a publicly traded company. Mm-hmm. So uh, they don't have you know, uh, full awareness of, of what the level of exposure is uh, that, that they might be you know, buying into uh, with, the, with their business. We, we have a full team. By the way, we have a full um, uh, almost an eight- or nine-man team spends a great deal of time just trying to analyze uh, who are the subsidiaries and divisions of public companies. I mean, I'm telling you the average person doesn't have a clue that they're dealing with uh, a public company because they're buying and selling under the brand name of the company that was purchased and is now part of the public company. And public companies are buying and selling companies every day, every week, and that's a huge business, so it's very, very hard for people to stay on top of that, and that's why we provide that service for free, because we understand how difficult it is. But as a general number, I want to tell you that we analyze uh, from trade receivable data that we get from our subscriber base of these corporations, and what we do is when we go through, we find that roughly between 40 and 55 percent of the uh, revenue that these people sell into on are into pro- into public companies, they're totally unaware of it. Uh, we get that uh, from tons of our subscribers who say, "I don't do business with public companies, or I do such a small amount of business." And all of a sudden, they give us their customer list, and we're finding out forty and fifty percent of their business is that with that. And it's not because they're stupid; it's just so difficult. To, to determine that, and then once you do determine it, here we have a score and a whole system. We really break apart a company in scale uh, where we can show the risk, uh, and we have this 98, 97% effectiveness. And we do something else that uh, nobody else does in the world. We're crowdsourcing. In other words, we have so many subscribers and uh, password holders who are parts of, of, of corporations all over the world, and these are uh, credit managers, in many cases, purchasing managers, but what they're doing is they click on our site because we've been in business uh, long enough and we have a structured site, and we can track as people get concerned uh, who are in the business of supplying trade credit to these companies. So uh, trade credit is probably the single most important source of working capital for most companies. If, you, if your suppliers decide they're going to stop uh, giving you 210 net 30, they're going to give you 210 net 15, let me tell you, you got a real serious problem of working capital. And so precisely when your numbers are looking a little weak, you're going to have to go into a bank and say, look, I need to borrow more money for working capital. They're going to take a look at the numbers mm-hmm. and say, I don't think so. Right. Or we're going to change the rate. And so Credit managers uh, are an important group of people that we're crowdsourcing. You can't get any place on the world. And so this is a, a very unique attempt to harness up the intelligence of these guys who can speak to public companies 
where nobody else can speak to public companies. In other words, we have a rule in existence they called the fair disclosure rule. Fair disclosure says that nobody can walk into a public company and get information that will impact the price of that stock, which the SEC refuses to define, so it means damn near anything. And so if you do as a company, you have to put a press release out to the whole world. And so very few companies want to put out a press release, say, hey, business stinks or something like that. <laughs> so they don't talk about it. So, But credit managers can talk about it. Let me ask you a question before most of our listeners either jump out of a window no, or take one of their pills. Can you give, <laughs> could you give us uh, your uh, website address so that they can track you down? Sure. Thank you for no opportunity. problem. It's going to cost you $9.99. Well, then the price has gone up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we are www.creditriskmonitor.com. That's www.creditriskmonitor.com. And it's uh, a spelling out. There's no spaces. And we have the name for a real reason. We're not only uh, assessing credit risk in particular, but what we do do is if you give us the entire portfolio, we don't care how many companies you have and how many you add, we are going to monitor it in real time and there's no increase in price. We don't nickel and dime anybody. It's a fixed price. It's four grand a year or eight grand a year. That's it. And I'm telling you that it is a who's who of America of uh, 35 to 40 percent of the Fortune 1000 plus well over 1,000 other large corporations all over the world. So the the second point that I, I wanted to bring up, I wanted to get your URL address in there, but uh, and you've been talking a lot about uh, you know all the downside and potential upside, which is primarily that of awareness. Mm. Uh, the point that uh, I'm concerned with is that when you're talking about a three and a half times debt to GDP. And you suggested that companies uh, cut back on borrowing, uh, cut back maybe on giving money to shareholders. You didn't say that. I'm just assuming that. Uh, is there a solution to this? I mean, is there a saving grace here? Or is uh, the human nature of things against solutions? It's not that there's a, uh, a solution to it or a saving grace. Here's Look, America is not going out of business. There will be an America. There will be a China. There will be a Europe. Those companies or those people who survive this will be in wonderful shape. In other words, as, as excessive competitors who shouldn't be there in the first place go out of business, when they finally go out of business and this contraction on scale finally ends, then those people or those companies left are in wonderful shape uh, to sell their goods because there's less competitors, less pricing pressure. Conversely, for individuals, uh, as the price of stocks go down and they get down to levels, and they will get down to levels which are bargains to, to purchase. In other words, um, the way to look at this thing is an example of how the different structures of the world work. If you were to walk into a supermarket and they had uh, a special soup that sells for $2 a can, and all of a sudden they have a sale, instead of $2, it's $1 a can, and they put it in end cap, then as the price goes down from 2 to 1, people buy the heck out of it. 
Conversely, if they were to say, look, the soup normally sells for 2 bucks a can, but from now on we're going to raise the price for the next two weeks to $5 a can, there's not going to be a lot of sales. People aren't going to rush out and buy it at 5 Let's take stocks. As stocks go down in value, in other words, the price goes from, not down in value, down in price from $10 to $5 and $4. Remember, as they're going down, they're actually a better buy. Correct. The volume contracts, just the opposite of the of the example with soup. As the price of the stock goes down, one would like to see more and more people buying it, but they don't. What happens is the price of, of the stock goes from 10 to 20 equivalent to the can of soup going from $2 to $4. Volume goes up for the stock, precisely the wrong time for people to be buying. So there's a herding instinct that takes over. And so what we're saying is the best solution in the world is get yourself prepared. Sometimes you're a little early, but better to be too early than too late. And so you as a company or as an investor or anything you want to get more and more cash, access to cash is also very important. In other words, you need to put your cash in a place where you can actually get to it. Because in many countries where this contraction on scale starts, when you look to South America, if you need some help and advice there, uh, they actually don't allow you to get, even get access to your cash. You know, Lou, I think that it's also um, important for, especially people in procurement and supply chain who have just, I don't know, to me it's incomprehensible the number of risks they have to be looking at all the time. Right. I, I, I really tip my hat to this entire group. Um, because uh, my attending ISM conferences, I'm just amazed at what their job entails. But, you know, we're sitting here talking primarily about financial risk. And certainly the goal of every procurement or supply chain professional is to build uh, a resilient and recoverable supply chain. And I think that, you know, what we've outlined are some of the severe economic issues that Jerry's pointed out really uh, leaves you kind of one choice, uh, and that is to build a process that can help you have a resilient and recoverable supply chain. And, you know, all we're saying is that by, uh, by understanding some of those inherent financial risks that might be uh, apparent at some of the companies that you're doing business with, given the current state of what we talked about ec economically, um, you can now take steps to possibly mitigate that risk. And, and how you do that is really kind of up to you, but uh, some people will look for alternate suppliers, and, uh, and, and some people will just take the process in-house. Some people will choose to just buy that supplier. I mean, they'll make whatever changes uh, or adaptations they need to in order to protect that supply chain uh, on a long-term basis. And I think that um, only through that development of a process and awareness um, can they really kind of uh, safeguard themselves to a certain degree that they can come out on the other side of this? And I think that's what Jerry's alluding to. On the other side of this, there's tremendous opportunity. You know, there's, there's maybe a chance to pick up market share. There's a variety of opportunities that will exist on the other side well, of it. Well, even uh, let's take a promotional budget. If I'm a sales manager and I'm running a company, I have a promotional budget of X. Uh, why am I spending some part of that promotional budget on companies that have a high risk of going out of business? Why don't I redeploy that promotional budget and give more of it to companies which are definitely going to survive? Because those are the long-term customers I really want to get now and keep. 
So there's millions of opportunities to amend policy, to amend positions, and make your company or yourself uh, much more uh, likely to survive and do well. And uh, so that's what we're suggesting. We're not telling people to get out of business and sell everything they own. What we're saying is take some steps, put some hedges in place, hedges that allow you to survive, because the guys who survive all this stuff are going to have a wonderful future in front of them, but they have to survive it. So one one of the things that I get out of our conversation is that uh, uh, becoming aware of risk and becoming aware of potential opportunities is the potential salvation yes. of your company and others. Yeah, I mean, we were able to, you know, uh, focus um, our clients' attention on those companies that have the highest degree of risk and with a great deal of accuracy. So if we can continually monitor a supply chain and continually help you focus your attention on those companies that have uh, that are showing signs of financial distress, you have the mo- and the more in the uh, advance notice we can give you to that fact, then you have a better chance of, of kind of managing that properly now and, and building that resilience uh, into your supply chain. You know, another way of pictorially expressing this is if you're on the Titanic, you don't want to get into a fight with the state uh, guy. You know, <laughs> which room you're going to get. You want to be <laughs> off the boat, you know. You, you want to not have gone on it. Yeah. And so we could argue about whether you got a good stateroom on the Titanic, but who cares? doesn't make any difference. Doesn't make any difference. You're not your Tim? I just want to jump in here uh, quickly. Uh, You know, my experience in the junk bond world is when a company gets in trouble and they've they've, uh, gotten in trouble because they've borrowed a lot of money uh, by selling junk bonds. Now the junk bonds come due, and what they do to get themselves out of that corner is they default on the bonds and reissue them at 50 cents on the dollar. Well, you're saying they. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. The question becomes whether or not this is going to be an explosion or whether it's just going to be a, a moderate meltdown. Well, let's take a look at that. That's an interesting solution. The solution is to default. Uh, that means all the people who lent the money uh, to this junk bond company are going to not get their money back, which is going to make them a lot poorer than they think they are today. Therefore, they're going to buy less shirts, less ties, less cars, and go to the movie less because they're poorer than they are going to be poorer than they think they are today. And they're going to do something which everybody should do in those circumstances. They're going to start saving. And as they start saving, God bless them, we want them to do that, they're going to spend less. And as they spend less, it's going to make demand fall. And therefore, excess capacity all over the world will be even worse. Economic contraction after debt, if it gets going, that's the reason why the central banks of the world lowered interest rates so low, and in many cases, uh, we have negative interest rates. This is not, we need to remember, this is not normal. This is beyond anything that anybody in the world has ever seen before. So what made them do that? Because they're frightened to death that the world was going to end. 
major league funds of billions of dollars who are going to governments and saying, here, take a dollar, give me back 98 cents, are not doing this because they think this is a great deal. They're doing this because they think it's the best deal under lousy circumstances. It is lousy circumstances. Uh, I can't... Uh, I think I can speak for myself. I've never viewed getting back 98 cents on a dollar as a great investment, ever. But it will be if the world's going to end. It could be. And if enough smart guys are now feeling that that's a correct matter of policy, what we want to ask ourselves, is it in the water? Did Kellogg's put some new stuff in the Rice Krispies? Like, what the heck happened here? What happened here is the risks that you look at. Look, uh, I, I'm not making any of this stuff up. The numbers are out there for anybody who wants to spend the uh, amount of time to look at this stuff. It's pretty ugly and pretty apparent, and it's up to those people who are trying to keep this Ponzi scheme going to convince everybody it's not true. Tim, uh, you know whether or not you uh, you see something happen on scale, uh, explosive as you put it or whether or not it's a slower uh, rolling out uh, of this contraction, um, still doesn't uh, mitigate the need for a process in place because you still don't want to be uh, having a supplier who is now having to default on their bonds in order to survive. And, uh, and this is having severe internal impact on that company's ability to do business and possibly deliver the goods. It might affect their quality of their goods, the, the, the timing of their delivery. You have a management team that's focused on refinancing their junk bonds rather than focusing on, on the business and developing their product and their people and their technology. So really, it's, you know, it, it doesn't really matter how this unfolds. It, what matters is that you know, we need to help people pay attention to those risks that exist at the companies with whom they're doing business and to build a resilient and recoverable supply chain from a financial risk perspective. Well, that's clearly what Credit Risk Monitor is there to do. You're absolutely correct. If people actually look at the amount of debt, not in the world, but just in the United States, and forget current debt, my current budget that the government's trying to pass, or my $20 trillion in federal debt, they have to add in federal debt, state debt, county debt, city debt, municipal debt, unfunded pension debt, there is a whole of amount of debt in the United States alone. And you're right, Jerry, not a good place to be for the United States of America and its citizens. I have a solution. We all move to Illinois. <laughs> luckily, most of us don't have. Luckily, most of us don't have to worry about the, the, the debt of the entire country. You only have to worry about the debt of the people that we're doing business with. So, yes. <laughs> I'd like to know if you two gentlemen have a lot of friends. <laughs> I'm down to just Jerry right now. <laughs> and I'm down to Pete, and I think you. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, uh, you know, this isn't a popularity contest. It's a great question, and it is a difficult message to deliver. And, uh, but you know, the name of our company is Credit Risk Monitor. This is what we do for a living. I mean, we're designed to help uh, companies uh, uh, deal with this. And uh, uh, so we specialize in it, and we spend an enormous amount of time uh, working up uh, a service to protect people because, you know, it's this is not. Uh, this is not good for everybody. You know, and, uh, if you'll permit me, um, I, 
I can't mention the name of the company uh, because of an NDA, but I, I do want to say something that I had uh, a multi-billion dollar aerospace and defense company put together a very elaborate proposal to bring us on board. And th th that's not really the point. The point is, is that this corporate uh, director uh, wrote the following in this proposal. He said, problem statement, insufficient attention to financial risk in supply chain accentuated by recent economic conditions, potential loss of key suppliers, contractors, and vendors may lead to unanticipated costs and problems in meeting our customer expectations and attaining profit objectives. And I think that says it says all. it all. That right. says it all. Yeah. And we just hired him. <laughs> no, <I mean. laughs> uh, just a just a very quick story. Uh, we do business with a company. It was a public company, also in aerospace, and um, we sold them a very large contract. And it was a long-term uh, contract, and we were sh shipping goods on a monthly basis, monthly basis. And you know, big company, graded. Great DMB rating. They're on the stock market. Who who rated them? Dun & Bradstreet. Oh, I never heard of them. Okay, uh, I'm sure not. <laughs> we don't even know their email address. <laughs> uh, and uh, we we couldn't get paid. And uh, we contacted the purchasing department. We contacted the uh, uh, the C uh, CFO. We contacted a lot of people. Nobody would even talk to us. And we finally left a threatening message that we are going to contact the uh, SEC, which we did, and we got paid. Wow. Uh, which is probably a very unusual event to happen. Uh, they're still in business. We're still selling them on completely different credit terms. Ah. <laughs> so just a quick story. Well, it's a, you, it's a, it's we certainly enjoyed the – the fact that Jerry and Peter joined us. Uh, you listeners may want to listen to this show more than once because there's a lot of meat in here. Uh, Jerry, uh, Peter, thank you for coming in and you know, scaring us all to death. It's a good thing. We need a wake-up call on, uh, on debt and the companies that we're dealing with. Well, it's a pleasure for us to be here. And uh, you guys are terrific. Uh, because you're willing to give us an avenue to try and talk to people and to talk to companies and um, hopefully someday uh, you know people will know enough to take some steps and uh, we'll have to sell our company <laughs> uh, we, we don't buy companies anymore after today yeah we don't either <laughs> gentlemen thank you very much for Pleasure. being on thank you show. Lou thank you Tim thank you guys Thank you for being with us. And we've been speaking with Jerry Flum, who is the Chief Executive Officer and Chairman of Credit Risk Monitor, and Peter Roma, who's the Vice President. We certainly suggest that you check out Credit Risk Monitor at www.creditriskmonitor.com. And thank you for listening on Manufacturing Talk Radio. Well, that was a pretty um, awakening show that we just had. Um, uh, I, I think I'm going to have to start looking into ways of, of protecting our assets as well. Uh, Jerry Flum and Peter Roma really make a reasonable argument for what's going on and what the next bubble may be. That being said, 
Let's talk a minute about next week's show. We have Tim Fiore from the Institute of Supply Management. He's the new chair of uh, the report on business, and he will be discussing the PMI for uh, June. And actually, we're going to be doing that show on July 4th, and um, we'll be there. You don't have to listen to it. You can listen to it afterwards or uh, on podcasts. But we are expecting that we are going to see some very good numbers. We're also going to have uh, Dr. Chris Keel, who is our economic humorist, and uh, he works for Amada Corporate uh, Intelligence, and he's the economist as well for Fabricators and Manufacturing Association International, otherwise known as the FMA. And he'll be discussing uh, the Credit Managers Index, which is all indicators to a lot of things that uh, uh, Jerry and Peter spoke about. So we're, we're tying all these economic shows together so you get a pretty good feel to some degree on how you should be monitoring your business and how you should be looking to do things to protect your business. Tim? Thanks, Lou. That's exactly right. That's the kind of the purpose of Manufacturing Talk Radio is to give manufacturers a heads up. We've been doing this now over three years, closing in on four years, and uh, have gotten a lot of uh, nice compliments back. All of our shows are at mfgtalkradio.com, so you can refer back to any of them. We also have news articles that are posted there daily. You can follow us on Twitter or Facebook. We certainly appreciate all of our listeners and all of the viewers and people who tune in to Manufacturing Talk Radio. And that concludes our very long show for this week, and we'll be back again next week with Manufacturing Talk Radio. Have a good week, folks. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.